Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. India is in a situation where it has its uh, most significant kind of external arm supplier. Uh, aligning even more deeply with its most significant external challenger. It strikes me that Beijing presumably would have preferred Moscow to adopt a kind of incrementalist gray zone approach to its goals in Ukraine. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, Tanvi Madan, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, and Ben Herskovich, Research Fellow at the ANU National Security College, join Professor Rory Medcalf in conversation. They analyse the impact Russia's invasion on Ukraine may have on diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific and globally, looking closely at the security interests of India and China. This discussion was recorded on Tuesday, March 29, before the reports emerged of atrocities committed by Russian troops in Bucha, Ukraine. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So welcome back to the National Security Podcast and our special series looking at the uh, consequences of the conflict in Ukraine. It's a pleasure to welcome to the studio today uh, Tanvi Madan and Ben Herskovich. Uh, Tanvi, of course, specialises in Indian foreign and security policy and the key relationships that India has in the world. And Ben, uh, as a colleague at the National Security College here in Canberra, you're uh, an emerging voice on China's role in the world and make a contribution, uh, importantly, on that side of the debate. What I'd like to do today is invite you both to speculate and uh, analyse the impact of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia on the diplomacy, the security, the interests, particularly of India and China, of key powers in the Indo-Pacific and globally. And I suspect we'll range a little bit wider than that, uh, obviously, the the impact on the Quad as uh, a key piece of diplomatic architecture in the Indo-Pacific, the impact perhaps on China's calculations, such as uh, the fate of Taiwan. So, there are so many issues we could explore. What I'd like to do, and it's the end of March at this stage, the conflict's been going for more than a month now. So what I'd like to do is wind back a little bit to begin with, beginning with you, Tanvi, and looking at India and India's response to the invasion of Ukraine, because I think a lot of observers who perhaps don't know India so well and who say, well, India is a democracy, the United States is a democracy, so many of the countries that have criticised and taken action against Russia over this invasion of democracies, uh, why was India not at the forefront or even in the thick 
of that democratic coalition. So I'd like to wind back a little and ask you to share your assessments on India's position, why India has taken the position that it has, for example, abstentions in um, UN organisations, and perhaps to explain the reasons why. Uh, thanks, Rory. It's great to be on the podcast. I think India's approach, and, and it's it's sometimes a bit too nuanced to try to encapsulate, but I will kind of, I think the bottom line is India does not want to isolate Russia but it also does not want to both either support or seem to support um, Russia's military action, its invasion uh, of Ukraine. I think they come, this comes from a position of kind of balancing, as the Indian External Affairs Minister Jay Shankar said um, about a month ago, pre-invasion when he was in Europe, that policymakers like him have to balance um, um, beliefs and interests. And in this case, it isn't just Indian kind of beliefs versus Indian interests. They're even kind of competing uh, within those two categories. And so you've seen, I think, uh, the proximate reason uh, for India to kind of not condemn Russia. Uh, are, there are a couple of them. I think one is that India in general does not condemn. One of its beliefs is it does not uh, think condemnation as an approach is effective uh, that is both a belief, but also an interest. It does not want to kind of adversely affect its ties with Russia. And I'll come to that in a second. Um, and so you've seen it not even, you know, it won't by name condemn uh, Russia. Uh, and for that matter, for example, India still has not condemned China by name for their boundary crisis in the last two years. So it's not just something India does with partners, but particularly with partners as it sees Russia as being it does not tend to take that approach. It thinks that condemnation actually isolates countries further and takes them away, pushes them in a corner, makes dialogue less likely. I think another kind of near-term reason, uh, there were a couple of them which were interests, is one India needed in the beginning to evacuate uh, over 20,000 of its citizens from Ukraine. And for that, it felt that it needed to keep channels of communications open with not just the Ukrainians, but the Russians as well. Um, and then another interest, I think, approximate interest was the fact that one of the things India has been concerned about is that as a result of this invasion, as the world's focuses on Europe, it was concerned that China would take um, uh, further military action on the uh, on the China on the India border, uh, and that would leave India in a situation uh, where it did not want Russia to put its thumb on the scale or tilt towards uh, to, towards China. Uh, because India depends for most of its frontline equipment, uh, which is still of Russian or Soviet origin, uh, on keeping that channel of communication and supply line open uh, from Russia. Um, I think there are broader kind of uh, reasons uh, as well, uh, but I think there are competing uh, uh, points of view uh, to these kind of interests and, and beliefs that had India take a more cautious approach in the beginning particularly, um, but you do have an India that, you know, it's has evolved this approach. Um, and it has been because for whatever the reasons of it not condemning Russia, um, almost every key or almost every interest that India has, has been adversely affected by the Russian uh, invasion. Uh, for one, India has no right, uh, no interest in endorsing the idea that powerful countries have a right to use force uh, to you know, violate their smaller neighbors' territorial integrity and sovereignty, uh, especially since India sits right next door to China. 
Um, India also, you know, has its economy. Um, uh, it's, uh, it, there's been economic impact, energy and food security impacts, particularly inflationary pressures. But this has resulted in significantly for India. Uh, they d- most expect this to, to lead to a deepening of Russia-China ties, which India does not think uh, in Indian interests. And this has, of course, complicated India's relationships, very close partnerships with the U.S., with Australia, with Japan, with partners in Europe, including Eastern Europe. Um, and there is concern in India. This will also divert American attention and focus away from uh, Europe, uh, from the Indo-Pacific to Europe. So you've also seen India that has, um, I, I suspect, privately probably expressed far more concern to Russia uh, than it has in public. That's the way India tends to do these things and, and urge, uh, and we do know that it has urged President Putin uh, to engage with Zelensky, President Zelensky himself, to sort this out and get back on the path uh, of dialogue and that that's the way to resolve things. Uh, but I think you also have seen a, a couple of other things, and I'll, I'll just wrap up by mentioning how India's approach has evolved, which is along with seeing India uh, provide humanitarian assistance to Ukraine, which they do mention. Um, there are some things that the Indian government doesn't highlight, but you can see in India's approach. Uh, one is that you have seen India go from saying uh, that this this should be resolved through Russia-NATO dialogue to saying this should be resolved uh, between uh, Russia and Ukraine, that there should be direct dialogue. Um, second, you've seen uh, India find ways to convey that it sees Ukraine as an independent sovereign republic uh, or country and Zelensky with, as its legitimate leader. You've also seen India drop references uh, that it did used to use, like China, of you know talking about legitimate security interests of all parties. It's dropped that reference. Um, you've also seen India reject certain Russian disinformation or propaganda lines, uh, unlike China. Uh, and these include India kind of very publicly rebutting uh, President Putin's uh, um, kind of line that the Ukrainians were taking Indian students hostage. Um, so you have seen kind of an evolving approach and you've seen now India pretty consistently talk about territorial integrity and sovereignty being the base and the UN Charter international law being the kind of basic principles on which uh, the international order depends that should be respected. Uh, you've also seen India kind of criti- criticized, even though indirectly, the Russians for shelling nuclear facilities. Uh, and so you have started to see India finding ways uh, to show that it does not support or endorse a Russian position. But equally, I do not expect it absent kind of some further major escalation on the part of Russia that involves tactical nuclear weapons or you know chemical or biological weapons. I do not expect India to condemn Russia by name. Thank you very much for that, Tanvi. And I think it's fascinating to hear that that evolution of the Indian position over the course of the conflict. I guess, to my mind, that it does point to some real tensions or even contradictions within the position. Uh, I guess that's that's uh, a function of, um, of 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 the complexity of international relations. There are inevitably tensions in countries' positions, but it's becoming pretty vexed for India. And I would like to come back to this a bit later on in the conversation, especially. The question about the you know the Russia India China triangle. I know you've written uh, a book about the as you call it the the, the fateful um, uh, India China United States triangle. But there's a, there's a Russia India China triangle here as well. I do want to um, pivot uh, to China now, and I, I would note that um, 
one of the events of of the past week, of course, was the the visit to uh, to Delhi uh, by by Wang Yi to essentially, as far as I could tell, uh, uh, tre- seek to portray. Uh, China and India is on the same page, whether they are or aren't is another question, and I will come back to you on that shortly, Tanvi, but I might bring Ben into the conversation at this point. And Ben, I might ask you to give us your assessment of, again, how China's position on this conflict has uh, developed or, or evolved or not over the past five weeks. I think it's fair to say And thank you for having me. It's great to be here on the podcast with you both. I think it's fair to say that Beijing is broadly deeply uncomfortable with Russia's actions in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, and all of the instability and uncertainty that that is unleashing. China would very much prefer to have the situation prior to this invasion maintained. But having said that, China is in the mode of trying to navigate its way through all of this chaos and uncertainty as best it can and use the crisis to prosecute pre-existing interests that it had of casting the United States in a negative light, wanting to ensure that it is able to develop its relationship with Moscow as previously flagged by the joint statement issued by Beijing and Moscow and make as much gains as it can via that critical strategic relationship between China and Russia, but also not be overly entangled in the unfolding conflict in Ukraine and try and weather some of the global diplomatic blowback that is being directed at Russia as a result of the invasion of Ukraine, but also countries which are adopting a kind of in the gray response to this conflict of not outright condemning in really forceful terms and not using punitive actions against Russia, but are willing, willing to kind of draw an ambiguous line here. I think ultimately vis-a-vis the India relationship, China would like to be able to say that as many countries as possible, not just in the region, but in the globe are similarly adopting China's approach of being disconcerted with Russia's invasion, uncomfortable with it broadly, not willing to, however, enact punitive sanctions. And that's ultimately Beijing's underlying concern here, that it wants to say to the world that countries like India, countries like Indonesia, critical powers in the region are more on Beijing's page than they are on the US page or the North Atlantic page, broadly speaking. So do you hold any credence to the view that uh, when when Putin and Xi signed their famous 5,000 word love letter uh, earlier this year, the, um, you know, this, the, the, this sort of no limits uh, partnership document, there's a view that in fact Putin foreshadowed to Xi that he had big and bad plans for Ukraine, but that somehow it would all go very smoothly and be over in a couple of days. And that that informed or misinformed China's thinking on this. Do you hold any credence to those theories and does that matter? I guess where we are right now, it probably doesn't matter that much. I think if Beijing was willing to sign onto that agreement, having had the invasion flagged to President Xi, it almost certainly would have been flagged as something which would be short and sharp and over quickly. I can't imagine, although this is, of course, highly speculative, but I can't imagine that President Xi Jinping would have signed up to that kind of agreement if he had thought that there was a significant chance of a long, protracted 
conflict in Ukraine with all of the strategic and humanitarian disasters associated therein. It strikes me that regardless of what has happened, Beijing would feel quite frustrated with the way in which this has unfolded and presumably would have preferred Moscow to adopt a kind of incrementalist gray zone approach to its goals in Ukraine, continuing to interfere politically, seeking to send more little green men into various parts of Ukraine and not launching the kind of full-scale invasion that has elicited a really strong, forceful snapback from a range of key countries around the globe. And I guess that's the playbook that Beijing preserves because that's what Beijing is pursuing vis-a-vis places like Taiwan. And Moscow and Beijing are playing this dance of trying to stay broadly on the same page, but it's obviously straining the relationship because so much of what Russia is doing makes China deeply uncomfortable and is indicative of tactics which China would judge now to be just so lacking in savvy and so lacking in judicious judgment. Well, it certainly uh, tells us something about uh, the the difficulty of um, full-scale kinetic war in the 21st century. We may come back to that if we have time. The um, you know the intelligence failure, if you like, by China on this is pretty astounding. Uh, we've you know looked at intelligence failures often by uh, Western countries in the past, but uh, Ukraine was at the very least uh, an intelligence uh, success for uh, the US and Britain, and a, and, and a failure for China. But that's that's another story. But the implications of this for the China Russia relationship, I want to go to, and I want to use that as a way of getting into this. Uh, Russia, China, India triangle. So, Ben, asking you first, what does the Russia-China or the China-Russia relationship look like as a consequence of this conflict? And maybe uh, projecting some years into the future, assuming that um, Putin's still in power or or, um, there's some kind of stability in Russia, but look at the Russia-China relationship as a consequence of this. How, How... different is that? Uh, you know, how much is that unlike the relationship that, that she was expecting a few months ago? I think significantly unlike that relationship. He would have been presumably, and of course, again, speculating, blindsided by all of this. And going to your point about intelligence failures, of course, as we now know, the Americans were correct. But this was a development which blindsided so many analysts and commentators around the globe. And President Xi Jinping was caught off guard, but arguably the vast majority of the commentary was caught off guard as well. And we just did not expect Putin to engage in this kind of behavior. And despite having a record of engaging in a huge amount of belligerent, aggressive, arguably morally depraved behavior. But I would say that on the China-Russia relationship, I guess that points in the direction of Beijing wanting to ensure that it isn't overly intertwined with what Russia is doing in Ukraine and the relationship being one which does not flourish as it would have flourished in the absence of this uh, invasion. We've already seen instances of Chinese financial services being pulled out of Russia. We've seen instances of Chinese banks no longer being involved in joint petroleum 
uh, projects in Russia and some kind of measure of economic disentanglement. And certainly in the absence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we wouldn't have seen that disentanglement. There would have been a deepening entanglement economically speaking, but also probably strategically, militarily, and diplomatically speaking. I guess the big question as to the future of the China-Russian relationship depends on the extent of the long grinding punishing nature of this conflict in Ukraine. If there can be some kind of negotiated solution in the coming weeks and months that allows for some kind of face-saving measure for Moscow and allows Russia to achieve some of its goals in Ukraine, but allows for the end of the conflict, I think we'll see a return to the trend lines that we had prior to this invasion, where there'll be a much deepening of the China-Russia relationship. And Russia will be re-accepted in the international community, at least in large parts of the international community. And it goes to that point that is made by those maps that are often shared on Twitter, highlighting the countries that have imposed sanctions upon Russia and those that have not. And if there is some kind of negotiated solution, the North Atlantic countries and a smattering of countries in East Asia, like Australia, like Japan, there will be a much longer road for relations with Russia to get back to where they were prior to the invasion, because really quite intense uh, broad sanctions have been imposed on Russia. But vis-a-vis countries like China, where there have been no sanctions, it'll be a much shorter road, provided that there can be some kind of negotiated end to the conflict in Ukraine. So the threshold question there for me, and I, um, you know, there's lots of interesting threads we could pull on, but the question I'll go to is, uh, does this make Russia more reliant on China? It probably does make Russia significantly more reliant on China, at least in terms of the economic relationship, given that Russia has been squeezed by so many of the largest economies in the North Atlantic, and China is the next largest economy. Also probably more reliant diplomatically and strategically, given that Russia has taken a lot of solace from the position that China has carved out on the world stage, and China has made it, in a way, legitimate in certain quarters to adopt a much more hedged approach on the issue of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But I will say the counterpoint to that is that Russia in this current moment of dire economic circumstances is able to receive a whole host of different economic lifelines, not just from China. So India is reportedly purchasing Russian oil and there is an exchange in uh, rubles and rupees. And that indicates that Russia has a lot of economic options to turn to. And so certainly Russia's economic intertwinement with a range of countries in quote unquote the global south will deepen and its economic entwinement with the North Atlantic countries will go down dramatically. But it's not just going to be a China story here. I guess it'll, it'll be an interesting question to see whether the, uh, the those other countries uh, in aggregate uh, have anything like the economic weight that, um, that Russia needs. But if the trend is towards Russia broadly being more reliant on China. Tanvi, I'll come back to you at that point. The um, the interests calculation that you know I can understand has been made in India over the years, and particularly in the last few months, is that there's, as you say, that strong reliance on Russia for supply of weaponry, of um, of military capability. There's also an energy reliance as well. Surely within the Indian system, there must be conversations about diversification at this point. Uh, yes, Rory. And these for India are not new conversations. You know, it's um, in some ways in kind of the global space, this February 4th statement has shone, you know, shone a lot, a huge spotlight on the Russia-China relationship. 
But for Indian policymakers, they this is one of the things they most closely watch and have watched since the 1950s. Because for them, when Russia-China relations have been close, it has usually advers- adversely affected India's interests. Because for India, they in an ideal world, they see they first saw the Soviet Union and then wanted the Ru- Russia to be a part of their balancing strategy against China, um, both in terms of internal balancing, so helping India develop uh, military capabilities, uh, and as an external balancer as well. But what they've seen and actually have worried about now for quite a few years is this deepening China-Russia relationship. Um, for them, it's not new that, you know, President Putin is talking about Russia or China as Russia's best friend, um, or that, you know, a few years ago, he was even saying, I can't rule out the fact that it could be an alliance. Now, even if it's not an alliance, even if it's just a marriage of convenience or an alignment, uh, Indians are familiar with arranged marriages. They can last a long time. And uh, India will particularly worry about something you just said, which is, you know, as it is, um, uh, during the 2020 boundary crisis, they did not and could not expect Russian support for India's position during the India-China uh, crisis. They didn't even get Russian um, uh, Russian backing when they had a 2019 crisis with Pakistan, where Russia offered to mediate as a, somebody, a country taking a middle path. So, you know, they don't expect Russian support. But a Russia that is more reliant on or beholden to China um, the question is, how much of a spoiler might it be for Indian interests if China makes those demands and asks? Will it feel the need to now acquiesce to those demands? Because, you know, India just can't compete. No matter how important India might be to Russia as a defense market, uh, no matter how much, you know, it's not that much of an uh, energy market for Russia right now for various reasons. Uh, only 2% of India's oil comes from Russia. Um, but no matter how important India might be for Russia, China is always going to be more important. And so India is in a situation where it has its uh, most significant kind of external arms supplier uh, aligning even more deeply with its most significant external challenger. And that is just something that India recognizes and has for a few years are hard to uh, reconcile. Uh, And this becomes even more complicated when you throw Pakistan into the picture with, uh, you know, China, for instance, reportedly facilitating Russia-Pakistan interaction, which in any case, because of their joint or their shared view of the situation in Afghanistan, has been deepening uh, in recent years. And so what I think you are seeing in India is a debate uh, on uh, two lines. Um, And it is essentially this question of, well, is the February 4th statement and the Russia-China relationship that this invasion has wrought, is that a turning point, something new, or is it more of the same? If you hold the first view that this is a turning point and people, former foreign secretaries like Sham Saran uh, and Vijay Gokhale have said that that's what their belief is, uh, then that leads to an implication that you do need to start not uh, this is not new, but essentially speeding up both defense, uh, kind of indigenized effort, indigenization efforts, uh, increasing or improving, enhancing India's own defense industrial base, uh, and second, to diversify even further uh, and even more significantly 
your external supplier base. And so that's not just going to be the U.S. In fact, you'll see France, Israel, other European countries potentially being amongst those sources. Um, and that's kind of the view you will hold that, look, um, you're not going to give up your Russia relationship, but you sure need to start reducing your over-dependence on it because you don't know what action it's going to take and if it actually might side with China in the next crisis. But if you hold the view um, that, uh, you know, that um, Russia-China relations, this is just more of the same, or as Ben was saying, that actually they have different, they are, they're not on the same page, and that, you know, this crisis might even bring to, bring to the fore some of their differences, um, and that it would, there are limits. It isn't a no-limits partnership, there are limits. Then you actually uh, have the view, as, as um, some like um, uh, former National Security Advisor Shiv Shankar Menon has said, that means, you know, you still want to give Russia non-China options. And so, in fact, it, it gives you that interest uh, in, in uh, indeed, um, continuing to uh, keep open channels of communication with Russia. So I think there's very much a debate on this. You're seeing it playing out, play out in kind of Indian uh, newspapers. Um, but the jury is out. And I think people will wait and watch. I, I suspect the Indian government will come down somewhere in between, which is say, you know, we don't want to close the door because as Ben said, who knows what happens a year or two from now. And, you know, in 2024, you could see an American president who wants to reach out to Russia again. Um, and so, you know, they won't close the door. But, you know, the, the big question is, are they, do they have the capacity and the political will to do what they've been saying they want to do for quite a while and speed it up, which is indigenization uh, and, um, uh, and kind of, you know, um, diversifying uh, partnerships. And, you know, I think um, our friend Indrani Bagchi, uh, who used to uh, be with the Times of India, still writes a column for them, uh, essentially um, reflected this in a recent column that, you know, that will help actually make India strategically anonymous, uh, autonomous, sorry, because if you are, you know, strategically uh, autonomous, uh, if you really are strategically autonomous, you shouldn't have uh, so much dependence on a country that you cannot actually say anything about your fundamental belief in something like uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty uh, being uh, inviolable. Yeah, and no, I did uh, a bit of a shout out to uh, Indrani Bagchi there. I thought that was a very good column. Yeah, it was fascinating that she she made the point that, that um, strategic autonomy should not mean uh, a kind of blind reliance on um, on one particular uh, supplier of, of weaponry. And and I do worry, I guess, for for the sake of India's interests, uh, at, at the possibility of a future confrontation with China where where China is literally in a position to pressure Russia into not resupplying India. I know this this is not necessarily about you know, instant resupply of ammunition. It's much more of a longer-term uh, supply line of, um, of, of equipment and capabilities, but I'm sure that must focus minds in Delhi. Uh, it does because it's not an abstract concern for India. Um, when India and China fought a war in 1962, at that point, uh, you know, China was the junior partner, say, to the Soviet Union. But because the Soviets at the time needed Chinese support for uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was ongoing, um, Moscow did um, support. Uh, it moved away from its position of neutrality on the China-India boundary dispute, and it took the side of friend uh, ally china over friend india it provided the chinese with intelligence on on india it 
provided diplomatic support, um, including public support for the Chinese position. It told India to accept Chinese terms that uh, they were offering, um, and it even stalled the supply of MiG fighter aircraft. So, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. This is this is at the back of policymakers' minds, and um, they've they've, or at least their 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 forefathers and foremothers. I don't know if that's a word, but have did see this play out. Um, so they will worry about it. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So look, I, it would be useful at perhaps not in this conversation, perhaps, perhaps another time to look, look at this question of, of whether this is a turning point uh, from India's perspective. I find it difficult to imagine that it's not, uh, but then I guess I'm, I'm watching the European narrative uh, very closely on all of this. And uh, I think it depends in my mind partly how profoundly this changes the strategic character of Europe, uh, which is looking pretty uh, uh, pretty serious at this point. What, what do you think, Tanvi? Do you think the Indian uh, Indian debate pays uh, a lot of attention to how NATO is shifting, how Germany is shifting, how how Europe is shifting, or is it much more focused on on the Indo Pacific? I think it is more focused on the Indo Pacific. In fact, we've seen a lot of commentary about concern about um, not just kind of the U.S. Um, you know, another American pivot to the Indo-Pacific being interrupted by developments in Europe and what this is going to do for the U.S. commitment, its willingness to spend and ability to, to devote resources in the region. Um, but I do think even concerns about, you know, the, uh, the Europeans uh, talking about spending more time uh, and attention on the Indo-Pacific, what is it going to do to all that? But um, you know, you do see some commentary in India that actually thinks NATO has been part of the problem. And, and, and I won't underplay that. You know, they do think that Russian security concerns about um, uh, European security architecture weren't heeded. And so, you know, that's a part of the, if, if not the proximate cause necessarily, but at the root cause, there is some, some sympathy for that uh, position. Um, but uh, having said that, I do think you are hearing voices in India say that, you know, Russia has managed in a way that, you know, China did a few years ago, that Russia has managed to, through its action actions, achieve the very objectives that it was trying to avoid, um, which is strengthen NATO, have, you know, Germany uh, rearm. Um, who'd, who'd have thought that, you know, we'd be kind of both, if, for those of us who look at both Europe and the Indo-Pacific, that, you know, we'd be cheering Japanese and German return to normalcy as security powers uh, against two countries, thanks to two countries who were on the Allied side during the Second World War. 
Uh, so we're seeing kind of this reversal um, thanks to kind of Russian and, and, and even Chinese actions over the last two years. Um, so I think you are seeing some of that debate. I don't, I think you're, I, I suspect you're seeing more of a discussion within the Indian government and thinking uh, about how profound the implications might be in terms of things like Russia, China. I haven't seen, you know, I think they have some of the voices I mentioned um, uh, have talked about kind of broader implications, but I, I do think there's still kind of a wait and watch attitude. People have been focused on the near term, you know, things like sanctions and the UN position and uh, even kind of Russian military performance. Uh, but I think, you know, there's still kind of a wait and watch. And I think some of this will depend on the duration and outcome uh, of this, uh, of the war, uh, not just in terms of what it's, you know, d- does in Europe. And I think they are, there will be questions, will Europe actually follow through if the, if this, you know, if, for example, there is negotiations do end up um, coming, you know, uh, coming to uh, making, bringing this to a conclusion, or does Europe, you know, not, not make the, the hard decisions uh, and return to kind of uh, um, status quo ante, so to speak. Um, but there are also questions about what this will do, right, for the duration and the outcome. What will this do to things like uh, Russia's uh, Russia's strength, um, its defense industrial base, its um, you know its uh, uh, the Russia-China relationship? So I think all this, uh, not to mention what are we going to see in terms of the U.S. role in the Indo-Pacific? So. I think those there's still a kind of a wait and see attitude, but you are starting to see some discussion uh, that this could have um, uh, uh, broader implications and more long-term implications than one might have thought uh, otherwise. And it's uh, it's fascinating watching it from an Australian vantage point, where uh, the idea of uh, kinetic conflict of, of of major violent war. Uh, between, uh, you know, as far as I guess from our lexicon, you know, developed countries in a um, in a European theatre uh, can take place in the 21st century, and I think the uh, you know the epochal shock of that is pretty profound in um, in some societies. So that goes to the question of war in the Indo-Pacific. It goes to the question of whether, in fact, in the 21st century. Uh, Major violent kinetic war between um, major countries is is a plausible thing, and it clearly is. Uh, but that goes against the imagination of just ten, twenty years ago, when you know so many observers were looking at the uh, the joys and cornucopian wonders of globalization and saying that you know major war is now obsolete, um, which is a way of leading to the question of Taiwan, uh, if, if you don't mind. And I'll go back to Ben on that. Uh, when the PLA looks at the carnage and the chaos uh, unfolding in Ukraine, what do you think uh, is the thinking now about the idea of a uh, forceful annexation of Taiwan? Yeah, this is a critical question. And one which is inevitably on the minds of everyone observing this chaos and tragedy unfold. I imagine that the first thought that comes to mind in 
policy planners' heads is that they are very glad that Beijing's approach to Taipei is a set of gray zone tactics of progressively squeezing Taiwan tighter and tighter diplomatically by seeking to isolate Taiwan internationally, economically by imposing trade restrictions on Taiwan, and in the informational domain by engaging in information operations and psychological operations in Taiwan and globally speaking. And the simple reason for that is that if you're looking at the possibility of a full-scale military uh, invasion of Taiwan, it becomes immeasurably more complex and more challenging than Russia invading a land, uh, a neighbor on its land border. This would be an incredibly challenging, complex operation that would be immensely uh, taxing for the PLA, logistically speaking, and in terms of personnel and in terms of capability. And so, you would imagine that Beijing would be thinking that we need to continue with the approach that we have had to date of engaging in tactics which don't rise beyond that threshold of uh, military conflict. You want to keep things humming away in the gray zone where you have a whole host of different advantages, where you can pull on a range of different levers and in such a way that you judge that you are being taken in the right direction strategically, i.e., increasing isolation of Taiwan and creating it as a kind of fait accompli that Taiwan will become part of China at some point in the future. So I think it's a cautionary lesson for the PLA and for the leadership in Beijing, but it's one that doesn't change their thinking. It's one that confirms for them that they have chosen the wise path vis-a-vis Taiwan. I think one final point to make is that even though we're speculating here about the views of the senior leadership in Beijing, and that's an inherently bold task and something where we can't have ever a really good, precise read. I think it's implausible to imagine that there was ever any concrete timeline for military invasion of Taiwan. I think Beijing's approach has always been this incrementalist one. And if anything, the Russian invasion of Ukraine confirms for Beijing the wisdom of incrementalism. But a, a, a massive military modernization in China with a Beijing mission. So on the one hand, I think you can understand how a lot of observers in government and out of government would say, look, we have to be ready for the possibility that China will mount a major military invasion of Taiwan. Uh, you're saying that um, whatever, whether that was true or not, this basically defers the day perhaps for a very long time, uh, that the PLA would seriously consider an invasion. I think it makes that prospect even less likely. I am of the view, and this is just a judgment call in the end, an analytical assessment that could be wrong, but I'm of the view that that was always the plan for Beijing, incrementalist, no full-scale military invasion. And this further tips the scale in my mind in the direction of that approach. And to the point of the massive PLA modernization program and massive PLA capability buildup over the course of not just years, but decades, that is to a significant extent being constructed for the purposes of some kind of Taiwan-like scenario. But as we know from the point of view of military planning in Australia or military planning in India, you can acquire military capabilities not with the intention of actually fighting the war, but for the purposes of signaling and for the purposes of deterrence and for the purposes of shaping. And so I suspect that Beijing's view is that those military capabilities are primarily aimed at uh, creating an intimidating environment for Taiwan and creating it as a kind of strategic inevitability that Taiwan will have to acquiesce in the face of the prospect of this overwhelming force. 
and I guess Taiwan's drawing its own lessons, including about um, about resistance. I, I've only got time for one more question now, and I want to throw that back to you, Tanvi, if you don't mind, on the quad. Uh, so we've talked about India, we've talked about the United States, uh, we've talked about Chinese perceptions. One of the criticisms that is made, if you like, of the Indian position on Ukraine is what this means for solidarity among the four democratic partners of the Quad in the Indo-Pacific. How do you read that debate and do you think that this deals a major blow to the Quad? Um, I don't think it deals a major blow, but I think it also depends on how the countries continue to handle these differences uh, over Russia. And mind you, this difference over Russia is not new. It's not new in the US-India relationship. It's not, you know, it wasn't, others weren't unaware of it. Um, but I do think, I mean, and in some ways, um, I think there are two ways of looking at it, which is one, um, the quad, the kind of revival of the quad, it's deepening, is itself an example of India being willing to make choices uh, against things that Russia has demanded or preferred. Um, and so not just about China, that it is willing to make choices that adversely affect Russia. Uh, and its relationship with Russia. Uh, the Russians were very vocal about not liking the Quad and India shouldn't deepen ties uh, with the Quad countries, either bilaterally or through through the grouping itself. Uh, in fact, more vocal than the Chinese. Um, I think in some ways, uh, and, and you know, I have a slight concern about our assumptions about Taiwan, which is um, we don't know. One thing that we should be thinking about is questioning our assumptions about autocrats in particular, that they will not take certain actions because we don't think they make sense. Uh, and, you know, most people thought Putin wouldn't invade because it didn't make sense for him to, as all of us would sit and calculate it. And yet he did. And people who know him and study him, uh, including some of my colleagues like Fiona Hill, had been saying for a while, he will invade. Uh, but I think the general consensus was, why would he? Um, it doesn't make sense. And so, you know, we think and hope that Beijing is getting the uh, lesson here that, you know, uh, military performance will be uncertain um, or that, you know, the, that, that there will be a response from the international community. Uh, but it could actually calculate differently or at least try to mitigate those responses uh, and um, effects. And if that happens, and the fact that this is, that, the, that if anything, this shows us that we should not assume that there isn't an urgent challenge in, in the Indo-Pacific, um, that, you know, these things are abstract concerns. This should show that they're not. And in, in that situation, the Quad actually becomes more useful and necessary. Um, cohe you know, cohesion amongst major powers, collaborative even if not collective security is important, uh, as are things like deterrence and building resilience in the region. Um, on the flip side, however, I do think um, it is there are questions in in various uh, in the other quad member states that what does this mean uh, in terms of what does this say to us? Will India actually align with us in an Indo-Pacific contingency? Um, you know, is uh, is India going to again take this kind of middle of the road path? And if that leads to a conclusion in Canberra and Tokyo and Washington that the that India India is more kind of or less committed and cer uh, certain on these things, then the question is 
will these countries find different platforms more useful and effective and worthwhile to invest in? And I think that's an open question. I think we have not seen that happen thus far, but you could see it, especially some of the more kind of security-oriented uh, groupings as being as being seen as more effective. And then from Delhi's point of view, I think the the question has been, you know, they wanted to keep they want to keep like uh, Europe out of the uh, Indo-Pacific, uh, and that's been their view that no, you know, Ukraine shouldn't be uh, discussed. But I think for India, there there are two things that it has to think about. One. Uh, just the impact on the Russia-China relationship is going to uh, ensure that you cannot keep the in Europe and Indo-Pacific theaters as separate uh, as India would like. Not to mention things like technology concerns and you know economic coercion and things like that. But I think the second thing is, and this is a question, and I'll I'll make that'll be my final point, which is I think there's still some thinking in India, and this is this will have an impact on the Quad which is how do you reconcile wanting to align with the Quad countries to balance China, but not wanting to align with several countries to isolate Russia? And how do you reconcile this when Russia-China relations are actually leading, resulting in a deeper alignment? Uh, and I think that's an open question. We'll have to see how India makes those calculations. Tanvi, thank you for all of that. Uh, I think many of us will be watching the strategic debate within India on these issues very closely, as indeed uh, whatever we can make of uh, the uh, strategic position in, in China as well. Uh, so I'll thank both my guests uh, and conclude the program. Uh, ben Herskovich from the National Security College and Regnet here at ANU. And thank you again for joining us, uh, Tanvi Madan from the Brookings Institution uh, and uh, a member of the Futures Council of the National Security College. Thank you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.